Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me just mention quickly, I won't ask him to come up here, but um, Christopher Espinoza is with us this morning. He is going to be with us this summer as our intern. Christopher, if you will, just raise your hand. Uh, you see his hand waving. Make sure and welcome him when you get a chance this morning. If I should have had you said amen while you had your hand up, and then the closest thing to praising the Lord. There we go. And um, he's going to be serving in a variety of ways, and he is uh, studying uh, general ministry studies, and he'll be here to serve in a lot of ways. You'll see him doing a whole host of things. We're going to put him to work while he's here and um, get some great experience. Nothing in the ministry prepares you for ministry like actually ministering. And so um, that's, that's our desire uh, to help prepare those that are serving the Lord and planning to serve the Lord. Those of you who have served, it's an important thing in our Christian life for us to put into practice the things that we hear, the things that we learn. Uh, we see this in our Christian life. We see this in our text this morning. Paul, as he is writing to the church at Thessalonica, is preparing them for the coming of Christ. Do you believe, let me hear you this morning, do you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back? If he is coming back, then Paul says there's certain ways we ought to live. There are certain, there are certain ways we ought to grow in Christ. He said that in chapter 3. He is preparing us. We saw in the end of chapter 4, when we started this study, in the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5, he describes the reality of the rapture of how Christ is going to come back. The trumpet of God will sound, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that's the promise that we have. That's the reality that we're looking forward to. But it ought to change how we live our lives. And that's what this letter is about. Every one of the chapters has ended. Every one of the sections has ended with a reminder of Christ's return. In chapter 3, he told us this is how Christians ought to grow if Jesus is coming back. Now in chapter 4, he's going to talk about this is how Christians ought to walk if Christ is coming back. Since Jesus is coming back, not if, since he's coming back, this is how we ought to walk. And that is putting into practice the growth if we just sit, what happens? To, to have energy and strength in our physical bodies, we have to receive nutrients. But if you constantly receive nutrients without actually doing any action, uh, there's a condition that comes along with that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We just constantly bring in and we don't. But when we put it into action, that's where strength comes. That's where we develop strength. And that's the same that is true of us spiritually. If we just sit and we receive the Word and we hear the preaching and we read the Word of God and we read books about it and we have devotions and we're constantly taking in spiritual nutrition, we've got to live that out. And that's what Paul is going to talk about in this passage. He uses the image of walking. Now, we're not talking about actually how physically taking steps. But he uses this image, and it's, it's a common one. He uses it here to describe our relationship to God, our relationship with other believers, and our relationship with this world around us. He uses it frequently throughout Scripture. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, walk worthy of the calling that you've been called with. Walk like a Christian ought to walk. He talks about in Ephesians 4.17, walk not as the Gentiles walk. Ephesians chapter 5, he'll say, walk in the light, walk in love, walk circumspectly. It has to do with our manner of life, 
How we live as Christians matters. And how we live reflects whether we really believe that Jesus is coming back. We say he's coming back. We say, amen, praise the Lord, I'm glad Jesus Christ is returning. But what does our walk look like? Being ready for Christ's return. I want you to see this as we work our way down through this chapter. First of all, being ready for Christ's return means to walk in holiness before God. To walk in holiness before God. Holiness is somewhat of an unpopular term among Christians. We don't, holiness is more than the name of a denomination. Holiness is a manner and a standard of living that God gives to us. He says, you be holy because I am holy. It's the nature of God that demands that we are to live holy. Notice what Paul says, first of all, in verse 1, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. Paul says, when we preach the gospel to you, we also preach this is how you ought to live, how you ought to walk and please God so that you will abound more and more. That's how we abound. It's not just the growing of chapter 3, it is the walking of chapter 4. It is the living out. You come to church and you hear things preached and you hear things taught. This is how you ought to live. But then when we go out into the world, do we live, do we live in holiness before God? It says it pleases God. We won't work our way through all these verses specifically, but in verses 2 and 3, holiness is obedience to God. He says, you know the commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is? I know a lot of times when we say we want to know what God's will is, we're talking about specific acts or specific places of service. And God does call us to, there is a specific calling of God. But let me tell you what God wants. If you want to know God's will, here's one place you can start. Your sanctification is the will of God. I mean, it doesn't, you can't say it any more clearly. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. What does the word sanctification mean? To sanctify means to make holy. It is God's will for every single Christian to be made holy, to be made and grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ and to walk in that holiness. Not just to claim it, not just to profess it, but to actually live it out. And he says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's what glorifies God, verses 4 and 5, and it avoids God's judgment. He says, this is sin against God. When you commit sin, it is not just against those around you. This is against God's commandments. Boy, that's so important for us to remember. We live in a time, and we often buy into this as Christians, that what's wrong is determined by how it hurts somebody else. Well, if it doesn't affect somebody else, then what's the problem? The problem is, is that when I break God's commandment, whether I see it affect somebody else or not, it is against God, and God is the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. Do you believe that? I hope a few more of you believe it than said amen. God's the one that sets the boundaries. How do we live in holiness? How do we walk in holiness? Paul's going to give us three things that are required. If you're going to walk in holiness, first of all, there has to be self-control. Verse 4 this is how, he says, this is the will of God in three, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. That is sexual immorality. 
Anything that God says is wrong in this realm, in this area, is wrong. It doesn't matter what society says. It doesn't matter what culture says. It doesn't matter what even some professing believers say. It matters what God says. And so it requires, first of all, some self-control. Look at this phrase in verse 4, that you should know that every one of you... How many believers is this speaking about? You all know what the Greek word for every means? It means every. That's not a deep thought. It just means every one. So this is not something that's just for a select few that have attained unto holiness. This is not a second-tier Christianity. This is for all of us that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Possess his vessel means to control your body, to control the fleshly desires of your body. That is contrary to what this world says. This world says, here's freedom, here's enjoyment, give way to this. The world offers freedom, but it enslaves Notice what he says here, a, flesh, a slave to fleshly desires in verse 5. Not in the lust of concupiscence. Now I'm sure all of you have used that word probably at least once this week. But it's a repetition, it's a, it's a figure of speech that means the lust of lust. The passion of lust. And it indicates, it focuses on the fact that we become slaves to our lust. Isn't that ironic that what the world is offering is freedom? Here's freedom to do what you want to do and in our day to be what you want to be. And God says, here's some boundaries. Here's some some limitations to that. And He says, don't be slaves. Be free. You see, it is the boundaries that God set that free us. The world says, here, let's expand the boundaries. God said it very closely. Some people say, Jesus didn't say anything about this matter. Jesus didn't say anything about that. Let me tell you what Jesus said, and when Jesus defined what is right in this area of sexual morality, it means that everything outside of that boundary is wrong. So Jesus doesn't have to list every single kind of immorality to speak about it. He speaks about what is right, and that excludes everything else. And you know what Jesus said about it in Matthew chapter 19? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And that's the boundary that God sets. And that boundary is not to restrict us and keep us from freedom, it is to protect us. It is for our good. And that is what God says, and He says, you've got to restrain your fleshly desires. And this world says, let's just open up to everything. Let's just open up and let's, let's, let's have freedom in this. And God says, that freedom is not freedom, that freedom is slavery. And here's the boundaries that I set. And so he calls for us not only to have self-control, but to be separate, to have separation from the things and the beliefs and the ideologies of this world. Notice what he says in verse 5. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. You see, the danger was that their idea in this, this area of sexual immorality, that they would adapt to the culture that is around them. That was a major issue in Paul's society, and it is a major issue in our day because of the level of ages in here. I won't go into a lot of details, but there is one after another areas of realms where where 
the danger to our children, the danger to our students, the danger to the marriage, the danger to homes, the danger, the openness of our society, the prevalence and the availability of some of the most vile, wicked things that used to you had to go to the darkest corner of town to try to find, and now you could sit in church with your phone and you could find it, or worse. Our culture is saturated with this idea, and yet God calls us as His people to a measure of holiness, and He says, here's the boundary. Don't go beyond this boundary. And we rebel against it, and we, we bash Adam and Eve. How dare they break God's command? We would never have done that. And yet, what do we do? We excuse, and we rationalize, and we follow after, and we listen to that, and God says, I have called you to be holy. My will is sanctification. Avoid, flee from, denounce fornications, sexual immorality. And the world says, how does God get to make the rules? Well, when you have your universe, you make the rules. But you don't have a universe, and you don't get to make the rules. I love what Adrian Rogers said about this. Every time God says, thou shalt not, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. The boundaries God said is protecting us. Every time God says, thou shalt, he is saying, help yourself to happiness. When we transgress, we break God's law and we break God's heart because God loves us. God didn't set that boundary of marriage because he wanted to keep us from something good. Satan comes along with the fruit and says, God's keeping you from something good. And yet God is protecting us. Why is our culture so faced with anxiety and depression and confusion? And we think if we follow after this, it's going to make us happy, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. Why? Because we are living a fragmented life. We are not living in wholeness, which is holiness. God calls us to walk in holiness. It requires self-control. It requires separation. But most importantly, and you cannot miss this, because you can have the other two and you'll become nothing more than a nasty, moralistic Pharisee. I've got self-control. I don't do those things. I've got separation. I don't hang out with those that do. I don't drink and dip and chew, and I don't go out with girls that do. That's what they used to say when I was a kid. We're holy. The Holy Spirit was nowhere within a thousand miles of it. True holiness requires a work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Look what he says in verse 8. He that, therefore, that despises, who breaks this law, despises not man. When you break these laws in, in sexual immorality, that's not going against man. That's going against God. But notice this. Who has also given unto us His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living inside of every one of us who has trusted Christ as our Savior. And it is only by His power, and it is only by His anointing and His work in us that true holiness can come out of our lives, that we can walk as we should. Can a Christian commit sins? Absolutely. But he is going against the very Holy Spirit that lives inside of him, who is a Holy Spirit who produces holiness, who works holiness in us, who works that completeness, who works the fruit of the Spirit 
That's what Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5 when he says the flesh lusts against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The flesh, what are the desires? The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And he lists all, all these sins that are the works of the flesh. And that's what Paul here is calling us to turn aside from. This is God's will. This is God's purpose for your life. He didn't save you just to give you a get-out-of-hell free card. He saved you for you to be holy. I hear people say things like, well, God just wants me to be happy. No, He doesn't. God wants you to be holy because He knows that the only way to true happiness is the path of holiness. And He is calling in His Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And so the flesh, the desires of the flesh that we are to control, fight against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and faith and temperance. Against those things there is no law. God has set no boundary against holiness. How do we do that? In that same passage, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you won't fulfill the desires, the lusts of the flesh. So He has given to us the Holy Spirit. Is it possible for me by strength of will to walk in holiness? depends on what you define holiness. If you define it as a bunch of rules and regulations, then yeah, I can, I can hang in there pretty good if I've got strong enough will. But if we're talking about truly, truly, true holiness and righteousness that is produced by the Holy Spirit, that cannot be done apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So how are we to walk if Christ is coming back? We're to walk before God in holiness. Can I hear an amen on that? Do you agree with that? Is that what the Bible says? Is that, did you see that? This is not what Cameron Cloud says. This is what God says. Y'all still with me? Say amen. Getting a little concerned. Some of you start talking to Baptist about holiness. That's a scary thing. Paul goes on to say we're to walk in harmony with the believers. Now, if you thought it was tough to walk in holiness before God, try walking in harmony with the believers. Now, I know that none of y'all have ever experienced this, but occasionally between Christians there can be a little dissension. It can be a little problem. We don't always get along. We sometimes are in conflict with one another. Now, I'm just saying this just in case you might feel tempted to do this. I know this has never happened to any of y'all. The 8 o'clock crowd, they go through it all the time, but not y'all. He says, walk in harmony. Notice what he says in verse 9. But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. I love that Paul writes to them saying, I don't have to write to you about this. It's sort of like moms when she tells the kids, I, I, don't, I shouldn't have to say this to you. I don't have to say, as she's saying it, as Paul is writing, he says, I shouldn't have to write unto you. Why? Because God teaches you this. This is something that ought to just come with the Christian life. The division and the conflict that's among believers, many insignificant causes of disharmony exist. And Unfortunately, instead of the believers being known for their love for one another, brotherly love, we're known for brotherly conflict. We're known for shooting our own wounded. We're known for splits and divisions. Now, I'm not talking about doctrinal distinctives. I get that fully. And there's brothers and sisters in Christ who believe differently than I do. And, you know, that's their, that is their liberty. That is their freedom. When we get to heaven, God will straighten them out. But that's, that's, their, that's fine. I'm talking about things that ought not divide us and ought not cause conflict. 
It's incredible. I, I heard this story some time back, and I, I love this. Some of you may have heard this. It's called The Heretic. Man said, I was walking in San Francisco along the Golden Gate Bridge when I saw a man about to jump off. I tried to dissuade him and told him simply, God loves you. A tear came to his eye, and so I asked him, are you religious? Are you a Christian, a Jew, a Hindu, or what? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, well, me too. Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, well, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, that's amazing. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, that's remarkable. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, that's amazing. That's a miracle. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He said, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and pushed him over the rail. <laughs> now we laugh about that, but I've known Christians to divide over less. God calls us to brotherly love. God calls us to love one another. And Paul here is not asking them to get something they don't already have. He is calling them to grow in what is already present. He says in verse 10, you do this already to the brethren that are in Macedonia. Now I'm asking you to do that you increase more and more. Listen to me carefully. We, when it comes to love, we increase by putting into use what we already have. We increase by putting into use what we already have. Love expands through expression. Love expands through expression. And as we love the brothers and the sisters around us, God increases our capacity to love more and more. That's why serving is so important. This team just talked about that. What an opportunity to show love, and it just increases the capacity to do so. 1 John 3, 8, we'll talk about this. He said, let's not just love in word, but in deed and in truth. Our love expands. Notice the third thing. We're to walk in holiness before God, Paul says. This is how you ought to walk. Walk in holiness before God. Walk in harmony with the believers, but then walk in honesty before the world. This world needs to see the real deal. They need to see genuine believers. Look in verse 11. And that you study to be quiet and do your own business. Parents, there's a great verse for, for your kids. Tell them to be quiet and to do the, mind your own business. Now, husbands and wives, I don't recommend sharing that with each other. As we commanded you, look at this, verse 12, that you may walk honestly toward them that are without. Those who are without, he says, I want you to be loving toward those who are within the church and within the family of God, 
but how do we act toward those that are without? He said, I want you to live honestly. I want you to live in such a way, I want you to be the genuine article. Be the real deal. Not perfect. None of us are perfect. Now, I know there's some of you that feel like you're borderline. You're closer than most people, but no. You remember what John said? John said, if any man says that he hasn't sinned, he's lied. So there you've got another sin added to the ones you already had that you were denying. We are not perfect, but we are to be genuine and real in our faith. This world has seen its full, its fill of hypocrites. And God calls us to real, genuine Christian living. To be genuine and be real. It means to live with integrity, living like Christians ought to live. It's what Paul said in Ephesians 4.1. Live, he says, walk according to the calling that you've been called with. We have been called to follow Christ, so live like someone who is following Christ. Now, if we put all of these things together, we live in holiness, we live in harmony, and we live in honesty, then there's a fourth thing that God brings all together, and this is really what He's calling us to, and that's living in wholeness. Because holiness is the way to wholeness. This world with its self-centered, self-expressive mentality is a world that leads to a fragmented existence. And there's conflict within our hearts and there's conflict within our minds and we're adding confusion upon confusion in a time when our students are facing so many conflicts and in a time of life when, when many of us were in that age. I know some of y'all, it takes a little longer to think back to that time. But when all of us were at that time, Remember how challenging and confusing it can be. And then you add even more confusions and more, well, you might be this and you might want to do this. And there's all these things. It's no wonder that anxiety and depression and, and uncertainty and confusion is abounding. And God calls us not. He says, I want you to live in wholeness. That's why Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The world says, here's Here's what we have to offer. This will give you fulfillment. And it doesn't bring fulfillment. It causes the opposite. God says, here's what I offer. Here's holiness. And here's love. And here's honesty and integrity. And this is wholeness. What does that look like? I want you to look in chapter 5 and verse 23. The portion that we're skipping over is that description of the rapture that Jesus is coming back. And then in verse 12 and down through verse 22, he's going to give a whole lot of basic instructions. Some as I was a child, some of my favorite verses, because if, if, if we'd have had Wednesday night Bible verses, Pastor Jeremy, this is where I would have gone every single time. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. That's my verse. Pray without ceasing. Powerful words, but so just compact. Great truth. This is what it looks to live with integrity and live with honesty. In everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Bullet point after bullet point. This is what it lives. What does it look like? It is wholeness. And we see this in verse 23. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, completely. You see, this work is not a work of our efforts and our attaining. It is a work of that spirit that verse 8, four, chapter 4 and verse 8 
He gave you the Holy Spirit. Notice who is doing the work in this verse. God sanctify you wholly. And look at this. I pray God, your whole spirit, soul, and body, all of you, the world says here's fulfillment, but it's in the desires of the flesh. It is only a fragmented part of us, and it ignores the spiritual. It ignores our soul. God says, what I have for you is complete. I pray God keep you and preserve you blameless. Now notice how he ends. Unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is going to happen when our Lord Jesus Christ comes? For us, it's called glorification. It is glory that awaits. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says that there is a glory that shall be revealed in us. When Christ returns, there will be that glory that has been a seed of it within us. And the Holy Spirit nurtures it and He works it and He's bringing it. And there will be that full glorification, the wholeness, the completeness all that God has been doing in our lives will reach culmination in glorification. And what always in the Scriptures begins in glory will ultimately end in, uh, begins in grace, will end in glory. And that's what we have to look forward to. And that's why he says he's going to preserve us. He's going to sanctify us. He's preparing us for the return of Christ when the glory, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, that eternal weight of glory will be fulfilled and completed in us. That's what we have to look forward to when Christ comes back is that all that partial work, all that struggle that we go through, all that restraining and keeping our vessel and all of that work and all that work of the Spirit within us and that holiness and that harmony and that honesty will be brought together in Christ-likeness. That's what it means for Christ to come back. What does this do? I'll tell you what it does for me. It totally changes the emotion that I feel for Christ's return. There were times as a child that I heard so much about, well, if Christ comes back and finds us in the middle of committing a sin, or if he comes back and we're not faithful, how embarrassed. And let me tell you, there's going to be some embarrassed Christians. We will stand before him, some of us ashamed. But I would lay down at night and I would be fearful. What if Christ comes back before the morning? And I was concerned that I was not ready. And so there was a sense of fear. It was not an excitement always or a joy. This is joyful anticipation that this is what we're looking forward to. This is what, we are, this is what awaits us when Christ comes back. I remember reading several years ago a book by a, an American military pilot, a man by the name of Scott O'Grady. Some of you will remember his story. Back in 1996, he was flying over a no-fly zone, enforcing a no-fly zone in, over Bosnia. He was shot down. Uh, they fired two missiles at him and his, his partner, and he was flying an F-16. The second missile um, struck about 10 feet behind his seat. He went down in flames. He ejected, floated down for about 25 minutes. I can't imagine the, what he anticipated as he looked down and saw the enemy gathering for their search parties for him. He landed behind enemy lines, and he immediately had to go into hiding. He found a place, he smeared mud over his face, he got up under the brush, got into the woods, and it was just in time because as soon as he got there, the searchers began to come. 
He said they were so close that he could actually see their faces. He could see them, hear them talking. One was an old man and a boy that were looking for him, and he stayed under hiding, and he put his seer training into, into practice, and for, for the next days would live off of bugs and worms and hiding up under the, up under the brush. Helicopters would fly over, he said, sometimes so close that he could see the face of the pilots. They would fire guns just randomly into the brush trying to scare him out, and he, just, he was just waiting to be caught, just sure that he was going to be caught in enemy territory. He drank all the, all the spare water that he had, and then he would try to catch rainwater. And he survived like this for six days, day after day, not sure when he might get caught, not sure when he would be taken and probably immediately shot, tortured. He didn't know what might take place. Finally, on the sixth evening, he was able to make radio contact with American forces. He had to be careful because he knew that if he made too much of where he was, he would be found because not only would the Americans know, his, his countrymen would know where he was, the enemy would know where he was. And so on the sixth night, he made contact and a, a rescue operation was put into place. On the sixth morning, as he stood at the edge of the woods, he described standing at the edge of the woods, waiting for rescue, waiting for that deliverance. He fired a yellow flare into the air, and he knew that now he was at his most vulnerable because once he disclosed his location, the enemy would be coming as well. And he stood there waiting with anticipation. I doubt very seriously that he dreaded seeing what came across the horizon. I'm sure he was filled with a joyful anticipation. As he watched the horizon, the sun started coming up, and two huge naval helicopters, 32-ton helicopters, came over the horizon. They came in and they landed about 50 Marines on those two helicopters. The first 20 jumped out of the first helicopter, formed a defensive perimeter around, and he took off from the woods and sprinted to get to that helicopter. As he got close, the other ones came out and they gathered him, and one reached down and pulled him up into the helicopter. Two hours later, he was sitting on a naval, less than two hours of the whole event, he was sitting on a naval vessel rescued. They said that as he reached down, as the man reached down to pull him into the helicopter, here were the first words that came out of his mouth. I'm good, but I'm ready to get out of here. I want you to know that we are in enemy territory. We are behind the lines. We live in a, in a world that is alien and foreign to the things of God. And we look forward to His rescue mission when He will come to take us out. And instead of looking at it with dread, instead of looking at it with fear, we ought to look toward it with, with joyful anticipation. And when Jesus comes back, maybe the first words that will come out of our mouth, I'm a good, I'm good but I'm ready to get out of here. Paul says, I pray God keep you holy. Walk in holiness. Walk in harmony. Walk in honesty. Walk in wholeness until the return of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? We, we say we believe in the rapture, but are we living? Are we ready for it? Are we looking forward to it with eager anticipation for when Christ will return to call us out of this world? Are we faithful? Are we ready? This morning, Jesus Christ is coming back. 
We don't know when. It could happen at any moment. If you've never trusted Him as your Savior, then the way that you get ready for the rapture is to do that, to trust Him, to tell God, God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I cannot do anything to save myself. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that He rose the third day and I confess Him as my Lord and my Savior. That's how you get ready for the rapture. And those of us who have done that, we walk in holiness. We walk as believers ought to walk. How you walking? Let's walk in wholeness. Father, I pray this morning that this word will speak to us if there's one here that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, that this will be the day. I pray, Lord, that you will encourage those of us who have trusted in you. Lord, this world is a dark place, and sometimes we can get so caught up in fighting the darkness that we forget the joy and the assurance of the light. Lord, the present may be dark, but the future is bright because you are coming back. Father, I pray that you will speak to our hearts this morning. Whatever you may speak to us about, may we respond and be obedient. We pray.